All right, here we go again. Mike is still out of town, so he asked if I'd fill in again this week for him. Well, so uh, you're stuck with me for one more week. And uh, before we get started, <laughs> this is too good to not share. Uh, the wife and I are doing a sleepover this weekend with the four-year-old granddaughter, and uh, she taught me a powerful lesson in uh, in testimony, the irrefutable testimony power. And she comes up to me and says, uh, Granddaddy, do you know how I know that, that witches are real? Oh, this has got to be good. No, how do you know that, Margo? She goes, because I have a pet dragon, and he saw one, and he told me all about it. <laughs> Alrighty then. <laughs> so I'm so happy we finally got that put to bed. <laughs> Just, you gotta love it. <laughs> but with that, we're continuing in a series uh, called Twisted Truths. And what we're looking at are some of the parables of Jesus. But we're trying to see these parables from some different angles and maybe at some deeper levels than, uh, than we are familiar with. So uh, last week we talked a little bit about the parable of the prodigal son. This week uh, we're going to tackle the parable of the Good Samaritan. You'll find that recorded in our Bible uh, in Luke, the 10th chapter, uh, starting with the 25th verse, uh, I think this is also in our worship bulletins this morning. But this parable goes, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. When we read this parable, it reminds me how these 
teachings of Jesus are very iconic. In other words, you don't have to be a Christian or a believer to get the gist of some of these parables that Christ told. Uh, I see these terms like prodigal son or good Samaritan a lot in very secular writings. I've seen them in newspapers. Because just stringing these words together in a general way communicates certain truths to people. And, you know, when people hear the story of the prodigal son, they associate that term with a wild child. When they hear the term good Samaritan, they associate that with like the story of the nice guy. And that's about as deep as anybody really takes it, and they're not wrong. But what's interesting is then even in a Christian community, you can say, okay, you know the story of the prodigal son. What's a prodigal? Uh, crickets. <laughs> or in the Good Samaritan, okay, what's a Samaritan? Well, I know what a good one is, I just don't know what one is. <laughs> and that's kind of ironic, isn't it? So today we're going to look a little bit deeper into some of the definitions of these words that are used in here, because I think that's part of the key to seeing this parable at a much deeper level. And when we study this, I think what the conclusion we're going to reach is that this is about a much, a much deeper lesson. On the surface, it's just about help people instead of not helping people. And that's a good lesson. But the deeper we get into this, the more it makes sense. So what Christ was really addressing is the love of law versus the law of love. And so as we go through this, it's interesting that this whole uh, conversation with Christ was initiated by a lover of law. The person is described as an expert in the law, which would have made him Jewish and would have made him a religious leader because law and religion were very inseparable in the Jewish culture in their community. So this person, he by the questions that he asked Christ, it kind of reminds me of this old story of an actor, a drunken actor back in like the 1930s named W.C. Fields. And W.C. Fields was a very, uh, you know, he wasn't, he was a drunkard and wild guy. He wasn't a religious man, but as the story goes, if this isn't true, it ought to be, because <laughs> it's such a good story. But, uh, but somebody supposedly caught W.C. Fields reading a Bible on his deathbed. So, of course, they couldn't resist poking a stick at him. So they go, W.C., uh, I didn't know you were a religious man. And he answers, I'm not, I'm not. He goes, well, then why are you reading the good book? He goes, looking for loopholes. <laughs> <laughs> And in a similar way, I think you could build a case that this person questioning Jesus wasn't really looking for guidance. He was looking, it says, for justification. In other words, he was like lawyers often do. Their power comes from not only knowing the law, but using it to their advantage or to their client's advantage. And in a similar way, I think this guy to justify himself was kind of saying, okay, I can keep that law as long as we define our terms the way I want you to. So what is a neighbor? And the 
one of the first things that strikes me in this story is how Christ brilliantly disarmed this lawyer. He one-upped him because the guy asks him, uh, you know, first of all, what do I have to do to receive eternal life? And you notice Christ didn't answer him, did he? He answered a question with a question. He turned it around on this lawyer and goes, I don't know, you tell me. <laughs> you give me your opinion first. And it forced the guy into a corner where he kind of knew where Christ was going to go with that. So he was coerced into saying the right answer. Even if he didn't believe it, he didn't want to publicly get into this debate because he didn't have the upper hand anymore. So he tells him this, and then he asks that other question. You know, who's our neighbor? And at the end of it, Christ again said, uh, you know, didn't let the story stand for himself. He asked, okay, now you tell me who the neighbor was. And just as an aside, I think that was some brilliant strategy on the part of Christ. So beyond that, again, the call it a debate or a discussion that Christ was having with this expert in the law centered on the definition of the word neighbor. Now the law said, love thy neighbor as thyself, but the practical application of that is going to be driven in different directions depending on a person's understanding of neighbor. Now, it's interesting in the Hebrew language, which the Jewish people were familiar with in the Old Testament, the word neighbor really boils down to, uh, you could use the word peers or uh, associates through relationships. So they had some commonalities. Grandma used to say birds of a feather flock together. So in one sense, like I'm older, when I think of neighborhoods, I think of close-knit communities where everybody knew each other. They were pretty much of the same socioeconomic class and people had relationships with their neighbors. Now, I kind of wish it was still that way, but you also see that like in the Midwest when we were colonized, uh, you see entire towns, communities that were founded by very like-minded individuals. They were bound by their common ethnicity. They were bound by common religions. And to this day, you have towns around this area like Viberg. You know, that's your Norwegians. You have the Tyndall Tabor area. I think those are the Czechoslovakians. They still have Czech days down there. They have, there's a town actually called Germantown. And so, that would be an understanding of neighbors or neighborhood according to the Jews. They would see those communities as being a bunch of neighbors. In the Greek language, on the other hand, the word neighbor really implied people that you were connected to by chance, by location. People that you were sometimes thrown together with. And that's more like the picture of a modern neighborhood where people just move in and technically the guy next door, he's my neighbor. Oh, do you know him? Nope. <laughs> Never see the guy, don't know anything about him. But technically, that's my neighbor. And that was more of the New Testament understanding of neighbor. It just meant proximity, close by, near. But another way of seeing that is 
people who are associated not by common race or common uh, economic conditions, but people that are connected at a deep, different, deeper level. It's something that some of my friends refer to as the fellowship of the spirit. And it's born more of common suffering and common solution. You see, like a textbook example would be like when the Titanic hit that iceberg and began to sink, instantly everybody on that ship became neighbors <laughs> because they were all in the same boat. <laughs> and that's more of an example of how neighborhoods are kind of created spontaneously through common suffering. And at that point, it didn't matter who was on the upper decks or lower decks. Everybody was pretty much, you know, all of a sudden that instantly became a, a le very level playing field. So with that in mind, uh, I think one of the key points in this to understand this story from Christ's point of view is to also define the term Samaritan. You see, the word good Samaritan actually turns out to be an oxymoron. We're familiar with those, two opposite words that fit together with things like uh, jumbo shrimp or a Great Depression. You know, those are they're kind of amusing things. But in Christ's day, the term good Samaritan would have been like that. It would have instantly amused people because they're going, there's no good Samaritans. <laughs> Because the Samaritans were hated by Jews. They were despised by Jews. They were mortal enemies of Jews. They had this long-standing rivalry. And for Christ to tell a parable publicly that would make a despised Samaritan be the good guy in the story and by default almost make the Jewish characters look less than, that would have been very offensive. So that would have not only gotten people's attention, but it might have got their blood boiling a little bit. And there's a lot of history involved in why the Samaritans were despised, and they'd done some things to the Jews, and the Jews did some things back. and So it was just a very tumultuous relationship. But, and then once we know what a Samaritan is, when we read this story, you'll notice there were two people who refused aid to the wounded traveler. One was described as a priest and one was described as a Le Levite. Now, by those terms, we know that both of these people who refused aid were both Jewish because a priest in Christ's day would have been a priest in the in the Jewish church. A Levite, there were 12 tribes of Judah, 12 different tribes of Jews, and the Levite was simply someone who was born of the tribe of Levi. And they too were Jewish, and they had a lot of different roles that they played throughout the years in the Jewish community, but they were also very respected people, as priests were very respected. So it might have been kind of shocking that these Jewish people wouldn't lend aid to somebody. And then in this story, you'll also notice there were two people who did administer aid to the wounded traveler. You're going, oh, two? Where do you get two? 
See, obviously the Samaritan stopped and helped this person, but so did the innkeeper. See, we forget about the innkeeper. <laughs> but he also was an active character in this story, and he also helped this traveler, but he did it, as we're going to see, for some different reasons. So the question then in this story, I think, becomes why did the priest and Levite refuse to help this person? And this is the truth in here, buried in here, that blew my mind. It's, if you were a Jew, especially if you were a holy Jew like a priest, there were things written into the law in the Old Testament where you would have very solid religious reasons to not come into contact with certain things because it would make you unclean. So following the Jewish law, they could have easily have justified not helping this person. There were three elements in this scenario that would make this wounded traveler a threat to them personally. For one thing, it says he was half dead. So to all appearances, they didn't know if that man was still alive, but if he was a dead body, for a Jewish person to come into contact with a dead body opened up a whole bunch of ritualistic things that they had to perform in order to become clean again. It was a real hassle. Secondly, he was bloody, and if you come into contact with blood, that too made you unclean, and you had a whole bunch of cleansing to do. Third, the man that says they even stole his clothes, so he was naked. And there again, to look on nudity, to come into contact with nudity, that was a whole nother violation of their law, so they would avoid that. And I think as further evidence of this, it talks about not just that they walked by him, they crossed by on the other side. So they intentionally put distance between themselves and this wounded man, which implies that they weren't uh, just nonchalant, they weren't just neutral about not helping, they intentionally avoided this person. And again, that really adds a lot of depth to this story because all of us as human beings, I believe, have a capacity for two things, rationalization and justification. See, the word rationalize, the root of that word is rational. When we rationalize, we give a sane reason for doing an insane thing. <laughs> we try to take something crazy and make it sound like it's perfectly reasonable. <laughs> the word justify has the same word, root as the word justice. And when we justify, we give a good reason for doing a bad thing. We try to say, well, we're doing something wrong, but it's done under the banner of justice. They have it coming. We're not criminals, we're vigilantes. We're not getting ahead, we're just getting even with people. So we can justify ourselves. And that's interestingly the word that's used in the passage. The lawyer was preemptively trying to justify things he might do in the future like this. To give a good reason for not doing a good thing. And I think it would have been easy for these religious people to have done the same thing. So the point of this then is why did the priest and Levite 
refused to help. It was because of two elements, religion and law. And remember, as Mike often teaches, religion and law were inseparable in the Jewish culture. They were pretty much the same thing because their religion revolved around the law, the Ten Commandments and all the laws that got written that expounded upon it. So their concern for becoming unclean, you see, uncleanliness is not a sin. It's just an inconvenience. But in their minds, it's kind of the same thing. So their concern was for themselves. Their concern was for their appearances. Their concern was for avoiding hassles, and they could easily have justified not helping. So it's interesting to me anyway that in this story you could easily use religion and law to let some wounded person die. Isn't that crazy? But yet I think we often see similar dilemmas in our modern society, don't we? Where oftentimes people have to choose between doing the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. And I think that's really what this parable addresses. The opposite question is, why did two people help? Now, obviously, the Samaritan gave from his heart. He was internally motivated to lend aid. The other, the innkeeper, he also lent aid because he was instructed to. It was maybe his duty or his job to do so, and he was compensated, actually compensated pretty well for doing this. So he, it didn't cost him anything, and he was compensated for it, and that didn't make him a bad guy. See, a lot of times there's people who are professionals, and, they, and some of them are also very internally motivated. Nurses, for example, they get into the profession because they have a heart for people, and that's a beautiful thing. And so again, Christ is in no way blowing up somebody because he, the Bible says the worker is worthy of his hire. He deserved to get paid. But I think what made the good Samaritan good was he did this without compensation. It cost him money to help this guy. And his reward, we believe, was spiritual in nature because this parable was about inheriting eternal life. So I think that there's a lot more credit for where our heart is rather than our heads, in other words. And in that respect, only one person in this passage was referred to as the neighbor, and that was the Good Samaritan. Which of these three was a neighbor? So, a deeper question is why would the Samaritan help somebody? What motivated him? When the Bible translates in the NIV as this good Samaritan took pity on this wounded traveler, the word took pity on him doesn't really do justice to, I think, what it's talking about here. It's fascinating that the word took pity is the same word in the Greek that was translated in the parable of the uh, prodigal son. It talked about the father was moved with compassion when he ran out to his son. 
This is the exact same word here. This Samaritan was moved with compassion for this wounded person. But we often, I think, confuse two words, sympathy and empathy. And oftentimes when the Bible talks about having sympathy for somebody or feeling pity or taking pity on somebody, I think the word that could perhaps be better translated isn't sympathy, but empathy. See, the difference is intellectually, I can feel bad for somebody in pain. I can feel sympathy. I can conjure pity, but it's more an intellectual thing. Empathy, on the other hand, isn't just feeling sorry for somebody. It's literally feeling their actual pain. That's empathy. And that's at so much of a deeper level. And that raises the question, what is it for us as humans that conjure empathy? And that goes back, I believe, to common suffering. See, suffering softens hearts. When we are hurt in specific ways, it softens our hearts and makes us much it makes it much easier for us to find motivation to help others and to love others, doesn't it? Because it, you could build a good case here that this good Samaritan perhaps actually was that wounded traveler at some time in his life. I mean, being a Samaritan, he was a natural victim. People love beating him up. And, you know, I'm sure he suffered a lot during the course of his life. And this road that he was traveling, was a history teaches, it was a very dangerous road, always full of thieves and robbers. And he was obviously familiar with this path because he took that wounded traveler and put him on his donkey obviously aware that there was a destination to take him. I knew there must have been an inn on that road within a donkey distance. <laughs> is that a term? <laughs> so that is evidence that he was familiar with this road. So it would make perfect sense if you could take a bit of a stretch and say maybe he was that guy. They had, he had been in his shoes. And that would, if he was truly a victim, at some point in the past, then what that would tell me is the guy was half dead. He was wounded. He was crippled. He was incapable of saving himself. He was robbed. He had no resources. He was broke. He couldn't afford help. He was naked, which meant he felt shame. He had a lack of dignity. And you see, if you've experienced any of those things in your own life, how could you look on somebody else feeling the same pain, suffering the same fate, and not be moved with compassion, not feel empathy, not feel their pain? That would be crazy, wouldn't it? And I think that's why what we see in our society today is burned victims, naturally want to help other burn victims because they felt their pain. Uh, drunks love helping other drunks. Uh, you see abuse victims whose heart goes out to other abuse victims. You see the homeless wanting to help other homeless. And you see in that respect too, birds of a feather flock together. But that's the fellowship of the spirit, common suffering, common solution. So, 
With that in mind, the human lesson, I think the takeaway from all this is that we can understand the religious. See, I don't really blame the religious people for walking away. And they had good reasons to do so. It didn't make them good people, but they weren't horrible people. And we can understand the religious. We can also aspire to be the Samaritan. Because anytime we hear stories, we tend to inject ourselves in them. And I can certainly challenge myself in this story. Say, well, you know, I hope that I wouldn't react like the, the priest or the Levite. I hope I would be the good Samaritan if I was challenged in this way. But I'll never know unless it happens, will I? It's like thinking you're prepared for battle. You don't know until the bullets come your way, and then you'll find out if you have courage or not. And it's the same with this. But here's the twist. I think perhaps we should try to relate to the wounded traveler. And here's why. See, here's a question. What difference in race, religion, social class, economic status, popularity, or any of that make to the wounded traveler? None. Do you think that he asked? Do you think that he cared? Do you think he would refuse help based upon those factors? <laughs> I don't. Do you think he actually could have woke up and looked at this Samaritan and went, Sorry, I don't want your help because you aren't a Jew or you aren't a Catholic or I don't want your help because you're not a male or you're not a female. You're not Northern European. Uh, you're not vaccinated. Uh, you're not, you're a Rams fan instead of a Bengals fan. <laughs> I don't want your help because you drive a Ford instead of a Chevy. <laughs> See, that's just crazy, isn't it? It, that guy, wounded, laying, bleeding on the road, naked, half dead, couldn't give a rip about any of that stuff. And anybody that came to help, the only right response is extreme gratitude. You know, he's not going to lay there and go, no, no, just leave me alone. I'm just going to lay here and bleed until somebody more in line with my personal philosophies comes along to help me. <laughs> that, that just wouldn't happen. So the point is, we are so quick to judge, so quick to condemn, so quick to reject, so quick to be exclusive based upon people who threaten us, either real or perceived threats. But all of that goes right out the window when we are in need and when people show up to help us. So instead of putting ourselves in the place of those characters who helped or didn't help, and asking ourselves, would I lend assistance to this wounded man? I'd like to think so. Maybe, you know, maybe not. But I think if we put ourselves in the place of that wounded traveler, the question then becomes, would I accept help from anyone? And you see, it doesn't matter if I'm bleeding in a ditch or ran out of gas. <laughs> if Grandma used to say, a friend in need is a friend indeed. And maybe this could be one of the keys to carrying the message of Christianity. Love and service, then, could be the key to being accepted as Christians. You see, when we approach 
truly needy, hurting people, they are much easier to minister to. But it's tough ministering sometimes to people who are having a great day. <laughs> and with that in mind, I think beyond that human lesson, there's a very powerful spiritual lesson in this too. The God lesson in all this is through the twists in this story, we see how God values the law of love far more than the love of law. And as we look at this parable, Christ in telling the story and telling it in the way that he did, shows like we printed in our worship bulletin, verses like God himself saying, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That he values love more than some rigid adherence to some law. And that tells a lot about God. Because you can do the right thing for wrong reasons. You can do the wrong thing for right reasons. But I think what this encourages us all to do is do the right things for the right reasons. And what motivates us as Christians is God's spirit within. You see, love is a package deal. If you have God, you have love. If you have love, you have God. And when God puts his love into our hearts through his spirit within, then I think that's how we find things like mercy, forgiveness, empathy, attraction. And that's really the point of Christianity. So as we stand for closing prayer, we're just going to say, Lord... Thank you so much for the lessons that you have taught us. And thank you so much for your love and for your spirit. And as we go out from here, Lord, help us not only to be that good Samaritan, but help us, Lord, to remember that at one time we were all that wounded traveler and help us to maintain that spirit as we go out from here to serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.